Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we have something of a tradition here at uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Every summer, generally in the early goings of summer, we devote an episode to just sharing some of our personal reading recommendations for you, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener. That's right, because summer breeze makes you feel fine blowing through the jasmine of your mind. Yeah. You want a book to accompany that jasmine of your mind. And we've got a bunch of recommendations here. That's right. We have, as always, we, we try and get a collection, uh, a little fiction, a little nonfiction, because, you know, we don't just throw a whole bunch of scientific uh, books at you, and we're, you know, we're probably not going to hit you over the head with anything too stuffy. But likewise, we know that our readers have diverse tastes, and we want to present you with some uh, some fictional selections as well. All right, so I'm going to launch in here, because I feel like this is probably the the best beachiest read if you are going to the beach and you do kind of want to put your brain on on hold for a second but you're really interested in knowing how some people's brains work when it comes to their art and i'm talking about this book called daily rituals how artists work and it covers everybody from like gustave flaubert tony morrison uh haruki murakami uh igor stravinsky i mean it's it's got a bunch of selections here that details the sort of habits that these people are made up of and how they create their art. And I find it fascinating because um, you may have some favorite authors in here or favorite artists or even favorite scientists, and you will find out how they started the day and, more importantly, how they obsessed. Because I feel like this is such a great little way to eavesdrop on on people and and find out how they do the thing that they do. Yeah, and this uh, I was glancing through this earlier. Um, it's segmented, correct? Like you can sort of skip through, and you can see uh, an individual uh, in, individual's name and, and hone in on that section, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yes, and it's it's uh, done in little chunks. So again, it's something you can pick up and put down really easily. Uh, the writer is Mason Curry, and he collected these. I believe he has a website in which he started to detail people's daily habits, people mm-hmm. luminaries mostly. Um, I'll just read this one little bit about Franz Kafka says frustrated with his living quarters and day job wrote in a letter to Felice Bauer in 1912 quote time is short my strength is limited the office is a horror the apartment is noisy and if a pleasant straightforward life is not possible then one must try to wriggle through by subtle maneuvers so you get insight yeah. into their psyche as well as what their daily rituals are. Yeah, and you can say, hey, his life was chaotic, and he got some stuff done and made a name for himself. Maybe I can do that, too. There's even this great bit about Patricia Highsmith, who is, uh, she wrote, I believe, The Talented Mr. Ripley, mm-hmm. about how she had this intense connection with animals, particularly snails, and how she smuggled these snails into other countries by attaching them to, like, I think, under her breast. Oh, it's good stuff. Oh, wow. So there's another, you know, she attached uh, snails to her breasts and she got stuff done. Maybe I can do that as well. Improve my That's life. the answer, folks. Improve my workflow. All right. Well, uh, the first book I'm going to bring up is uh, is one you may have uh, heard me talk about a little bit before, and that is Dark Banquet, Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood-Feeding Creatures by Bill Shute. Um, and he has a website uh, devoted to this book, which is darkbanquet.com. Uh, so... This is a wonderful text, uh, very accessible, 
This is not a stuffy science text. This is a fun science text. Uh, the book deals primarily with vampire bats, but it also discusses a variety of natural, other natural world blood drinkers. And it goes into the uh, surprisingly interconnected worlds of natural world uh, sangovores and the mythic world of humanoid vampires. He gets into into vampire hysteria and in this interesting reality where you had the idea of the vampire um, in the West before we'd actually discovered vampire bats. Uh, I'm going to read just a quick little uh, section from this book. Clearly, though, once word of the existence of real vampire bats began to circulate, a new supernatural emphasis on these mysterious and as yet unidentified creatures began to take shape. Bats living in Europe, where blood-feeding species had never existed, were gradually implicated as being vampires. Hysteria and storytelling outpaced reason and science, though to be frank, science has done a lousy job of getting its vampire bat stories straight. So there's just a, a taste uh, from the book. Uh, like I say, very accessible, fun. And uh, when I ran across it, it really blew my mind because I was just doing a quick uh, Monster uh, Science Monster of the Week post on the blog series where I'm, I was just kind of thinking, well, how would a human vampire have evolved? Uh, the the answer or some suggestion mm-hmm. of how this would work would, be, would, would best be found in the evolution of the vampire bat. And when I was looking for a good source on that, I ran across his text. And uh, we ended up discussing this in, a, in an episode on vampire bats uh, for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Go back and listen to that. But essentially, you just get into this crazy idea, I mean, this crazy world where you're, you're imagining the evolution of this creature. How does it, how does it end up in this scenario where it, uh, it takes on blood, uh, as, as its eventual primary, uh, mode of, uh, of feeding itself, its primary food? Right, because as we've discussed before, this is not an easy living. No, you know, it's not like they found the the the, sh- the, the get rich quick scheme in no. the uh, in the Hunger Game that is uh, uh, that is uh, evolution. No, they they ended up making a name for themselves on a on a, a really poor source of sustenance. Yeah, and I think it underscores this whole idea of of this this heartbreaking idea when you talk about predation and mm-hmm. you talk about being one of the animals in, in those circles. Because, again, we're pretty lucky to have gotten out of this, right, uh, that no longer do we have predators going after us. But this heartbreaking idea where you have to, you know, constantly go after something, tear it apart, take its energy for your own day after day, particularly with these vampire bats, right? You have Night after night, you must seek this blood for sustenance. And to me, that underscores the whole predation thing in the first place. Yeah, we're all kind of vampires in a sense. Yeah. I know. Well, I'm a vegetarian, so... You're still a vampire. You're a plant oh, vampire. a plant vampire. Yeah. Fine. And they're sun vampires, so... <laughs> and dirt vampires. <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, the next selection here is, is a fiction, uh, work of fiction. It is called The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. And I guess you would put this in the, the sci-fi realm. Um I don't want to say too much about it because I don't, I don't want any plot spoilers here, but it is just, it's grabbed me by the cojones, the invisible cojones that, that I have. And I'm just going to read this little selection here. It says, every morning, Melanie waits in her cell to be collected for class. When they come for her, Sergeant keeps his gun pointing at her while two of his people strap her into the wheelchair. She thinks they don't like her. She jokes that she won't bite, but they don't laugh. I mean, there's, there's, it just, I'm, that's the beginning of it. I'm, I'm reading that because I want you guys to understand that this honestly is something that has completely arrested my attention here. I know that I'm not through it all the way yet, but it's excellent so far. 
Joss Whedon has said the story of Melanie and the people around her is so thoroughly crafted, so heartfelt, remorseless, and painfully human that it takes the potentially tired trope of the zombie apocalypse and makes it as fresh as it is terrifying. The story spirals towards a conclusion so surprising, so warm, and yet so chilling that it takes a moment to realize it's been earned since the first page and even before. It left me sighing with envious joy, like I'd been simultaneously offered flowers and beaten at chess, a jewel. So, just to give you guys an idea of of what it's about and the sort of accolades it's getting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds fascinating, and I and I can't help but wonder. I did the did the author take this on as a like a, a challenge to say, I'm going to write a zombie apocalypse novel, even though that idea, everyone when with any irrational thought is going to say, don't write a zombie book. Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't whatever you do, don't write a zombie apocalypse book. But then she's she's done it and she's made it work and she and done it in a in a new and exciting way. Yeah, I was making me think about Richard Matheson's I Am Legend mm-hmm. in the same way that your the internal state of this person is being plumbed mm-hmm. to to the the deepest depths that it's um, that you kind of forget that there's this other horrific story that it's wrapped up in. Does that make sense? So. Yeah. And I am legend. You're, this man is so isolated, and there's such existential terror yeah. at, at having to board yourself up every night to keep you know the boogeyman away that you forget that this is essentially a, a vampire story. Yeah. And well, in the same way, you know, um, the girl with all the gifts is making you forget that this is a zombie story. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, my next uh, reading recommendation is another book that uh, we've mentioned on the podcast, uh, particularly in our Fraggle Rock Troglophana episode. And this is The Wider Worlds of Jim Henson, Essays on His Work and Legacy Beyond the Muppet Show and Sesame Street. Uh, this uh, was compiled. This was edited by Jennifer C. Garland and Anissa M. Graham. Uh, you can find this in. Uh, I think it's cheapest as a Kindle book, but you can order a physical copy as well. Uh, and I, I'm not going to read an excerpt, but I just want to roll through the, the titles of some of the collected essays by various authors, just to to give you a taste about how how deeply uh, these authors dive into the world of Henson, which you know ultimately is a very thought out uh, world. I mean, we, Henson wasn't just uh, you know spitfiring some ideas and saying, ah, eh, let's make something about uh, some Muppets living in a cave. No, that was a very nuanced uh, idea. They were setting out to achieve certain things and, and relate certain messages to uh, a young audience. Yeah, I mean, psychological and talking about the biodiversity is really interesting. Yeah, so you have uh, four different uh, essays on Fraggle Rock, including um, No Sex, Please, We're Fraggles, which gets into uh, uh, gender. In Fraggle Rock, uh, the uh, wonderful uh, Ecology of Fraggle Rock by Justin Verfel that we uh, referenced. You see uh, either various uh, essays in here about the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, including uh, interpreting the various species in the Dark Crystal and Fraggle Rock, uh, including uh, what was sundered and undone shall be whole, union, nature, and agra in the Dark Crystal. There are uh, some essays about the Storyteller series, which I, uh, I adore as well. Um, Everyone's Storyteller, the shifting roles of stories, storyteller, storytellers, and audiences in the Jim Henson Hour. Uh, there's uh, some stuff on Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, of course. Uh, and then uh, there's, uh, let's see, a couple here on uh, Farscape as well, including Exploring the Alien Other of Farscape Human Puppet Costume cosmetics. So if you are a, a Henson fan, if you are a, you know, a Labyrinth fan, Dark Crystal fan, Fraggle fan, fan etc., et this is a book you really should check out because they, they, they all, all the authors take a deep, loving dive into these creations. 
All right, and speaking of representations of animals, uh, my next pick is a nonfiction pick. Um, it's called Wild Ones. It's sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. And it's by John Mualem, um, who's also the author of the 2010 New York Times piece, Can Animals Be Gay? Which we did an episode on uh, based on his writing and research. So I was really excited when this book came out because I think that he has a very interesting perspective and his stuff is really well researched. Um, I was also very interested in his perspective on the the relationship between animals and humans because he comes at it from the angle of in 2010 he became a, a father he became a new parent and all of a sudden he was aware of this this deluge of animal themed things coming into his life oh, via yes. his child so you know what i'm talking about oh yeah they love the animals yeah you get you you all of a sudden have 500 books about animals. You have pajamas with animals on them. You have, you know, um, songs about animals. And he began to think about this in, in very serious terms. Like, what does this mean? This is a very illusory, uh, fictional world that we're creating for these children. This is a fairy tale about mm-hmm. animals. When, in fact, the actual state of animals in the animal kingdom on earth now is going to be vastly different when, when, you know, my daughter reaches the age of 30. Polar bears may not exist. So he started to, to take this on, this idea of conservation and, um, extinction. And he looks at, I believe it's butterflies, polar bears, and the whooping crane and follows their specific, um, trajectories through conservation, through um, looming extinction, and how humans are are actually trying to affect change. And it does get depressing at times because, um, I don't want to ruin it for people, but the way in which we're going about this, he may argue, is that we may be creating a world that cannot sustain an animal kingdom in earnest as it has in the past. So even trying to conserve animals may be uh, sort of a zero-sum game because we have so altered the landscape and we are squarely in the Anthropocene era in which is the man-made era and we are manipulating everything around us. So it's a good one to read at the barbecue this summer. That's what you're saying. It is something that you should corner one of your family members about (laughs) at the barbecue and just depress the hell out of them. Sounds good. I mean, if you're like me, I mean, I I like a good sobering read you know i mean I, we're not talking about escapist uh, books here we're talking about books that they make you think make you uh reevaluate uh humanity's uh trajectory your own personal trajectory well, well yeah and he's also digging deeper into um you know the subconscious here too he's saying like why why aren't those polar bears effective anymore have their <laughs> cuteness actually usurped their message uh, or the, the message that conservationists are trying to put out there about habitat loss and extinction. And so it's very interesting. It sort of talks about how um, psychologically we are taking all this information in, how it's essentially becoming ineffective and, and why that is. Anyway, yes, it's a, it's a good read. Now, uh, Julie, I understand that you are about maybe halfway through um, watching True Detective, the HBO series right now, correct? Yes. Yeah, and you're, you're enjoying it? Yes. Can you see the spirals in my eyes? <laughs> I, I, so, God, I cannot think of better writing, better storytelling, 
and also um, stories that hit on a lot of the themes that we talk about. Yeah, I was when when I first started watching it, which was I guess it was like three or four episodes into the run, and I started hearing all the buzz, and people were cornering me. Noel uh, here in the recording studio was cornering me, and our producer and asking me if I was I was reading if I was watching it yet, and why I had not watched it yet. It was hitting uh, all these various themes that we've covered before. It was lining up with some of my own personal interests. So uh, I love the show. And afterwards, I was really interested in the the show's creator and writer, uh, Nick Pizzolata, because clearly this is a, a guy whose brain is lining up with my own in some respects and mm-hmm. has created some art that I'm really into. So I discovered his book, Galveston, a novel. And uh, I very strongly recommend it, particularly if you if you were a fan of, of True Detective and you want a little more of that kind of flavoring uh, in anticipation of a second season eventually coming out. Now, I want to uh, preface and say this is not a book that is rife with a bunch of um, super mysterious intrigue. There's no there's no mention of Yellow Kings. There's no uh, sort of uh, Lovecraftian sort of elements in the works. Um, the, the, but uh, but it does have a lot of the uh, the the feel that you would find in uh, in some of the characters in True Detective. Now, this novel deals with a character by the name of Roy Caddy, who's a criminal, career criminal, living in uh, New Orleans, and then he finds out that uh, he has a terminal illness right about the time that he f- that he finds out that his boss, who's a dangerous uh, loan sharking bar owner, wants him dead. So there's this uh, brutal sequence where he's double crossed, barely makes it makes it out of town with his life, and he ends up on the run uh, into. Uh, coastal Texas with um, a a prostitute and a young girl. And from there, it just goes into some very interesting places. I don't want to give anything away, but uh, but you do have a character who's really coming to terms with with what's important in life. What's he going to do with the rest of the life that he has here? Uh, how does that square with what he's made of his life so far? And it's just beautifully written. Um, I, I was really impressed with uh, Pizzolatto's uh, uh, use of language in this novel. Um, the, the character at times feels like he is kind of cut from the same cloth as the the Rust Cole character. Uh, like they, they're, like there may be sort of cosmic twins in some huh. way, but yeah, beautiful read. And uh, at the end, I actually ended up uh, tearing up a bit. So I'm not gonna. I, I do have uh, one little uh, section I'm gonna read for you. I'd really want to read you read you the last couple of paragraphs, but that would be spoiling things. We were silent for a long stretch. Then, with the wind shushing outside and the rhythm of a skier, a cloud riddled heaven sealed the horizon, and I felt like we were bugs crawling along the edge of the world, which we were in a way. I kept us westward, the sun at our backs, the girls' faces turning sleepy. That old rule came back. You do your own time, not someone else's. But what about after your own time is done, I wondered. I looked down at the little girl sleeping, one fist curled under her chin. Why'd you take the silencer off, I asked. Rocky shrugged and followed something out the window. I thought it looked meaner without it. I said, have you ever been to Galveston? She shook her head. So there's just a taste. Uh, again. Yeah, already. I'm yeah. like, whew. There in that scene. So yeah, don't go into it expecting uh, you know another slice of True Detective. But if you appreciated uh, the, the writing, you appreciated some of the feel of that show, then uh, you really can't go wrong with that book. And last I checked, the the Kindle version is available for like two ninety nine. So you're basically losing money if you don't buy it. There you go. All right. So in the realm of fiction, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, the pick that I have here is Blonde. I believe this came out maybe in two thousand. It's an older book, but I wanted to go back to it because um, I think we were talking about Marilyn Monroe and her breathiness. 
Yes. And that got me to thinking, like, I really would like to know more about Marilyn Monroe. And uh, Joyce Carol Oates is one of my favorite writers. Um, the the first time I was sort of indoctrinated with her writing was in the short story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Mm-hmm. And that's about a teenager named Connie. And she's got a really bad case of teenager ennui. At the same time, she's got this burgeoning sexuality that she's trying to deal with. And uh, what I love about this story is that it's a kind of coming age story that everybody knows about, but they never discuss. And what I'm talking about here is like the burden of sexuality as a woman. And uh, essentially what that sometimes boils down to is predator and prey. And in that mm-hmm. short story, um, this guy, Arnold Friend, shows up as the predator in this gold convertible. And this, this gold convertible becomes this kind of like death chariot for Connie. So the reason I bring this short story up is because Blonde is about Marilyn Monroe, obviously, but more about that burden of sexuality. And it is just a phenomenal take on this historic, iconic person who is in many ways unknowable, and yet somehow Oates has gotten into her internal life, her uh, into her thoughts, what I think might be her thoughts, right? And has written this narrative that is so compelling that you think that you are reading Marilyn Monroe's diary. And it starts out with Marilyn Monroe's child and follows her through her suicide. And it is so gripping. I can't even tell you, like, it's probably one of the most haunting texts that I've ever read. And I don't know how she did it. I really feel like that's one of those moments where she was struck by the muse. Yeah. And how she inhabited um, this person who is very much sort of a, a flat character for us, right? It's this um, this woman who is innocent, and yet she's the sex kitten. And you see through this, this lens of her life, this other side to her, maybe how she became Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn Monroe, by the way, uh, in real life, was freighted with all sorts of problems, as we know. And her mother um, had some very bad mental problems um, that obviously showed up in Marilyn Monroe's life. Anyway, let me just read this New York Times review real quick because I think it is pithy. And I will go on and on if I don't stop myself by reading this. So it says, Blonde, although sometimes sloppy and sentimental, it is perhaps the most ferocious fictional treatise ever written on the uninhabitable grotesqueness of femininity. No one embodied femininity better than Marilyn Monroe, who concocted a persona who seemed to exist only for sex and at the same time to be oblivious of it, who possessed an eroticism that was all responsiveness and no desire. How else to cater to a masculine sexuality that hates itself and demands that females receive and bear away that hatred like dutiful wives cleaning up after a husband's violent binge? And I thought that was that was great. That really takes the spirit of this book and the spirit of those times in which Miller Monroe um, came to inhabit all of these uh, anxieties about sexuality. Excellent. Well, I have to I have to admit that when I when I first heard about that book mm-hmm. it was hard for me to to get excited about it because i, I love uh, joyce carol oates mm-hmm. I, I most of what i've read of hers is uh you know strange fiction stories that she's written and uh uh and i believe i've read, read a longer work or two sort of dealing with uh with twisted uh, flawed individuals um grotesque individuals mm-hmm. even and so the cell 
oh, she wrote a book about Marilyn Monroe. Just on, on the surface, it, it doesn't seem to match up, you know, because I'm think, thinking Joyce Carol Oates is on one end of the spectrum, uh, Marilyn Monroe is on the other, and, and, and never the two should meet. But, but yeah. now that you've explained it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You mentioned the grotesqueness of femininity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that, that bridges the gap right there. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more interested in checking the book out myself now. Yeah, and her narrative techniques are fascinating, and she uses smell a lot. And you mm-hmm. wouldn't think that, like, oh, I'm going to read this book about Marilyn Monroe, and there's the, one of the tropes is going to be smell. Huh. And it comes to symbolize, and really, it even comes to, to sort of symbolize um, Marilyn Monroe's attempt to try to escape her more working class, grassroots, you know, um, and then ascent to stardom through the sense of smell. It's fascinating. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is the person, Joyce Carol Oates, who wrote the book Zombie about Dahmer. Yeah, great book. You've read that one? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, so you wouldn't you wouldn't think Dahmer, Marilyn Monroe. But again, it uh, it sounds like it works. In her capable hands, sure. Yeah. My uh, next selection uh, is one is another one that I would definitely put in this category of uh, the, the cell maybe not sounding all that great on the surface of things. And the book is uh, 112263 by Stephen King. Now, I'm a longtime King fan, so I don't have to come I don't have to get over a, a Stephen King hurdle. I think some people have that in their mind, like here's a very popular author. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's and he's you know been churning out books like crazy for years. Is he deserving of my attention? I would argue yes. I think I think Stephen King has has earned his place uh, and has certainly earned his his literary reputation on top of his commercial reputation. Uh, but even even for me, this was a hard sell because the the idea on the book here is, hey, what if you traveled back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination? Which of course occurred on eleven twenty two sixty three. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment. You know, you get into well, what hap- what would happen if you could travel back in time? What would happen if you changed things? The butterfly effect of changing something in history, um, and that's fascinating. But it doesn't necessarily uh, connect with me beyond that. I, like mm-hmm. I, so, when the book came out, I just kind of noticed that it existed and moved on. And then, just in the last fall. I I was in the situation where, of course, uh, I had a new child in the house. I seemed like I was spending a lot of time uh, laying on the floor of his bedroom, waiting for him to go to sleep so I could sneak out. And a friend sent me um, a Kindle copy of this book, and I started reading it and just could not put it down. Mm-hmm. It was just it, it's just highly addictive right from the beginning. There's no there's no uh, hurdle to overcome in reading eleven twenty two sixty three because one of the really fascinating things here is first of all there's no worrying about time travel science how you do it basically. A magic portal opens up. How does it work? Who knows? Maybe it's a wormhole. Maybe it's magic. Don't concern yourself with that because it's uh, it's the story is ultimately about more than that. The idea is that this portal only opens up to a period uh, in the past prior to eleven twenty two sixty three, and so in order to go back in time and change uh, the past, you would have to go back. Uh, you, you ha- you'd have to live in the past. You'd have to go back into the past and live for like for, for you know a year or two to reach the point where you could change history. Hmm. And there are these added complications in that uh, you get into the idea that the time stream is like it's like a river. And to try and divert a river, there's there's resistance. So our character, as he goes back in time and ultimately sets out on this quest to change history, he begins to encounter resistance to the change. So he's trying to be injected out of that time stream. Um, yeah, to to a sense, or it's sort of like there's so much riding on the way things work mm-hmm. that there's a resistance to making small changes in the time stream. Huh. But he's trying to make a large one, 
and in doing so, uh, the forces against him are, are, are almost immeasurable. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating read. It's really one of the best King books uh, I've read in quite some time, so I highly recommend it. Well, yeah, and I think that, again, he is someone who is also just a master at his craft, and oh, yes. so I can't imagine a bad turn at, at a character or, yeah. or even just a plot line with him. And you also learn way more about the Kennedy assassination than you ever thought you wanted to know. Oh, good. That means that you can drop in on those conspiracy theory chat rooms, right? Yeah, and then you know what they're talking about. You know who some of these figures are because they show up as figures in this book. Because part of it, too, is the character goes back in time and he's not certain. There's no one. Like, they think there's like a 90-something percent chance that it, that it is just the lone gunman theory. But what if? You don't want to go back and and kill Lee Harvey Oswald if there's even like a 2%, 5% chance even that he's not the guy. And then ultimately you wouldn't be able to change uh, history anyway. Yeah. And by the way, Marilyn Monroe is wrapped up into exactly. this as well. So um, there you go. Fitting, fitting pair of books there for the summer. Indeed. All right. Uh, my last uh, pick here is Cabinet of Curiosities, My Notebooks, Collections, and Other Obsessions by Guillermo del Toro. And Mark Scott Zicri. And this was actually a book that I got for my husband because um, he likes Del Toro. And uh, he he really likes a lot of this. I don't know if you would call it this like monster aesthetic in art, the grotesquerie. I don't know. Uh, but I've been pouring through it. It is kind of a, a much bigger deep than that Daily Rituals book I was talking about where mm-hmm. you get to peer into artists' lives. Here is this this really like lends into del toro's life you get to see his collections just stuff that he 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 collects in fact i'm looking at this picture right now of a life-size sculpture of hp lovecraft (laughs) by thomas kubler which is watching over the horror library at the bleak house um I mean, he has a life-size culture <laughs> of H.P. Lovecraft. He's kind of leering at you as you walk around the house. Very odd look on H.P. Lovecraft's face. And so you also have some of his influences. So Mary Shelley and Lovecraft, of course, and Arthur Mackin, Edgar Allan Poe. Is it Mackin or Mashin? Uh, I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, author of the, the Great God Pan, which is an extremely creepy short story. Yeah, so in this sense, I think you get a lot more than you would bargain for from someone who is um, a director, right? You would normally think, oh, maybe I'll get a little bit of access to how he works. But no, you get everything it looks like here, um, short of a personal tour of his own home. So I just thought it was great for anybody who is interested in some of the monster science that you have been covering um, and anybody who is interested in his films because he's got thoughts for new films kind of scribbled in there, bits of dialogue. Um, he's got uh, other bits of dialogue from plays and from stories that have colored his perception. And then, of course, just his sketches are fascinating. Yeah, his uh, sketches uh, are, are amazing. And apparently when he pitches projects, like the sketches are very much a part of it. And they're, mm-hmm. they're, the, ske- the sketches are, are part of his writing process and a part of his way of of bringing his own ideas together and then ultimately presenting them to uh, studios. Yeah, so it is really kind of like cracking open his brain. You're able to see all his obsessions, his influences, and then uh, how he thinks and his representation of that in in sketches. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if beautiful, but horrifically beautiful. Well, yeah, that's the thing. He he gets horrifically beautiful better than than just about anybody. I, I mean, certainly you see in his work, there's there's so much monstrosity. He mm-hmm. genuinely loves monsters and understands what monsters are. You see uh, a great deal of uh, of Catholic imagery, uh, like I, I especially with Blade Two. I love that he created a vampire that could only be killed by staking it through the side of the rib cage. Uh, as, as in in the same way that Christ dies on the cross when the spear uh, enters the rib cage and pierces the heart, uh, and he you know it, it, he has this whole this whole design in place where the the bone is uh, is too solid over the heart, so mm-hmm. you can only go in through the side. I mean, it's just I, I love the man's aesthetic; it's just wonderful. Which is makes it that much more exciting to know that he's working on H.P. Lovecraft's uh, The Mountains of Madness. And yeah. in fact, there's a couple of pages dedicated to that as well. So that level of detail, seeing that come across in a film, is would be amazing. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really hope that project comes together. It, it sounds sounds wonderful. All right, I have one more uh, reading suggestion, and this one uh, has to do with monsters, and it's for young readers. So um, uh, this one is certainly worth picking up. It's called Monsters and Water Beast, Creatures of Fact or Fiction by Karen Miller with illustrations by Sergio Ruzier. And this is uh, this looks at a number of different monsters, including Bigfoot, the Big Bird of Texas, Hoop Snakes, Mothman, the Jersey Devil, and then the Water Beast, uh, Sea Maiden of Biloxi, Champ, the Sea Serpent of Gloucester, and the Cadborosaurus. Uh, this is uh, this is ultimately a skeptic's book on monsters mm-hmm. for young readers. I mean, I mean, I enjoy it, so you don't have to be you don't have to be too young to get into it. But it's uh, it's wonderfully illustrated. It's uh, it's looking at these creatures from a skeptical point of view, but a fun point of view. It's it's you know it's not full of negativity. It doesn't say don't love your monsters because clearly this is a book that <laughs> loves the monsters. Yeah. While also saying, hey, I can I can love this and also apply a skeptic mind to it. So if you have a, a young reader. Uh, or not so young reader uh, in your household uh, that is interested in monsters and and, uh, is, and and has that kind of skeptical mindset, then uh, I highly recommend it. Indeed, which is actually a good reminder about your monster series uh, called Monster Science. You should check that out on our Mind Stuff YouTube channel. Yes, we have six episodes of it, and we're we're plotting six more. I'll let you know uh, when those come to fruition. All right, well, uh, what about you, Julie? Do you have anything you're planning to read later this summer or later this year? Well, what's what's on the future? What's on, on the to-read shelf? Um, The Martian by Andy Weir and The Leftovers by Tom Perota, which Noel, our producer, told me is actually being made into a series, I believe. Oh, I've seen the ads for it on HBO, and I can't tell what it's about except screaming and pain. And uh, I think it's people time. who suddenly disappear. Oh, really? It. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, I have picked it up in my hands a couple times and looked at it, and I have not bought it yet, but it's on my list. Huh. Very, very good. Uh, two things I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, one, I don't know when this is coming out, hopefully sometime. It's supposedly coming out this year. The sooner the better for my uh, taste. And that is uh, The Unholy Consult by R. Scott Baker. I've mentioned Baker before uh, on the podcast probably uh, way too many times, actually. he uh, He's written, uh, he wrote uh, Disciple of the Dog, he wrote Neuropath, and he also wrote uh, the trilogy, uh, the Prince of Nothing trilogy, followed by the the uh, trilogy the aspect emperor this is the third book in the aspect emperor trilogy these all these uh the, the both these trilogies take place in this dark fantasy world that it's created you can think think game of thrones but with more sort of dark lovecraftian clark ashton smithy sort of uh, magic going on okay. but also baker 
is deeply immersed in uh, in philosophy and neuroscience. So all all of everything he's creating, it's uh, it, it really like it's not pure escapism because even though you're reading about say uh, you know a barbarian on uh, on the plains of some dark fantasy epic world, mm-hmm. uh, that that character is is struggling with. With uh, with his own uh, self in a way that really forces you to reconsider, uh, you know, your own predicament. Uh, it's it's tremendous stuff. I highly re- highly recommend it, and I'm really looking forward to reading the Unholy Consult when it comes out. A bit of nonfiction that I'm looking forward to reading uh, as of this morning is the Body in Pain: The Making and Unmaking of the World by Elaine Scarry. I uh, I heard about this one listening to uh, the episode Unspeakable Acts on the CBC radio program Ideas with Paul Kennedy, which, for, for my money, mm-hmm. is just about the best uh, podcast or radio show out there, mm-hmm. Ideas, uh, CBC, Paul Kennedy. Check it out if you haven't. But uh, this uh, this book by Scary apparently you know gets into this idea of pain and torture in a, in a really deep manner. Uh, looking at pain is uh, is frame breaking, context breaking. Um, our difficulty to understand the pain of others, the terrible power of torture to destroy language. Uh, there's a quote uh, just from the the intro of the book where she says, "This book is about the way other persons become visible to us or cease to be visible to us." It's about the way we make ourselves available to one another. Hmm. So I, I'm as someone who has of late been been interested in, in elements of torture and pain. This seems like a must read book for me. Yeah, it sounds like uh, she'll be covering the territory of uh, of objectifying someone and creating that space. Yeah. Yeah, like, a very interesting realm to explore. Yeah, she uh, she speaks in this uh, this uh, ideas episode I mentioned, unspeakable acts, and it's mm-hmm. really really in- interesting to hear her talk about uh, about pain in these uh, in, in these terms that I hadn't even thought about. I, mm-hmm. uh, yet. So uh, so yeah, check check out uh, the ideas uh, podcast radio show and uh, and check out uh, the body in pain if this is a topic that interests you as well. What is the author's name again? Uh, Elaine Scary, S C A R R Y. Okay, yeah. so. Yes. Nominative determinism at work again. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Part uh, philosophical meditation, part cultural critique. All right. Um, I bet you guys have some books that you would like to recommend. But please let us know, like, what is the number one thing on your list to read or that you would recommend? Either way, we would love to know. Uh, you can find us, of course, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah, and um, that's where you will find all our blog post episodes, our podcasts, our videos, as well as links out to our social media accounts such as Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook. And there is still an old-fashioned way to get in touch with us as well. That's right. You can send an old creaky email to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.